0: welcome to the emergence podcast where we explore the new innovations in emergency medicine and how they are helping emergency providers improve the care for and outcomes of their patients i'm your host mark mesher welcome to the emergence podcast sponsored today by abbott I have the good fortune of speaking with Dr. Jeff Bezarian, an emergency physician with an active concussion clinic and research program today. He serves on several traumatic brain injury related task force and panels for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Institute of Health, the National Science Foundation, and the Institute of Medicine. Welcome to the show, Jeff.
1: Thanks, Mark. Happy to be here.
0: Good, I'm excited about today's topic. I think it's uh, a very relevant one, obviously, and an ever evolving and changing uh, landscape as far as how we go about diagnosing and treating traumatic brain injury, uh, especially in the emergency room. Um, before we get into kind of uh, your work and, and the very specific aspects of that, I'd love to learn a little bit more about uh, you as a physician, what made you decide to go into medicine? And uh, and then more specifically, what uh, drove you into becoming an ER doctor?
1: Yeah, those are great questions. Great, great place to start. I haven't really thought about this, and probably <laughs> since I applied to my last graduate program hundred years ago. Um, decision to go into medicine, you know, like like many people, I, I suppose I was influenced by my my parents, my my, my immigrant parents. My mother is a as a nurse who probably should have been a doctor, but because of the way the more is at the time in the 40s sure. and the forties and the fifties, that was not for I mean, my dad was an Armenian immigrant. And um, yeah, I think the expectation for him was to be a doctor as well, but he didn't. So, so both of them kind of said, Oh, we got an idea. Let's have one of our sons be <laughs> a doctor. Lucky for them. I was inclined towards biology um, anyway. So, yeah. It I mean, always I, helps
0: if you have an actual desire to do something your parents want you to do. Right.
1: Correct. And what I was going to say, when I was 15, I was in a car accident, spent some time in the hospital. Wow. And I think that, um, that experience, uh, definitely kind of solidified my, my desire to do, to do something, you know, in a medical realm.
0: Sure. And then, uh, uh, I guess specifically was that experience also what got you into emergency medicine or, or was that more a decision made after you got into medical school?
1: That's a that's another good question. I, I didn't have a traditional path to emergency medicine. I did an internal medicine residency because uh, it was back in the '80s before EM residencies were really taking off. And, but I was always the I was always the guy putting in the lines for people, doing the blood draws and the art gases. I kept thinking, like, hmm, I wonder if this internal medicine thing is the thing for me. And uh, you know, when I was done with residency, I, I immediately started working in emergency departments and kind of grandfathered and boarded, boarded that way. And I practiced emergency medicine my whole life. And I'm glad because it was a perfect fit for my personality.
0: Oh, that's good. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I've talked to a number of ER physicians who rarely is there a traditional path that leads them into the ER. So it's interesting, but uh, not surprising that, that you speak uh, the same uh, in that regard. I guess more specifically in, in the ER space and, and the work that you've really driven to do as it relates to traumatic brain injury, you know, what led you down that road within uh, the emergency medicine space?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and You know, I first started practicing emergency medicine in the early 90s. We had a lot of folks coming in to the ED with head injuries and the only tool we really had was CAT scan, and we were trying not to apply that to to as many patients as we possibly could. And I I felt like this was a, this was a funny injury. Like we, unlike other, other injuries or illnesses, we were telling people like, yeah, you probably have something wrong with you, but you don't need any imaging. We don't really have a way to to diagnosis and you don't really need to be here. Right. ER, So, you know, we're going to discharge you. Good luck. You know, and I think like that kind of struck me as odd. At four years into practicing emergency medicine, um, my father died of a traumatic brain injury, and I started to really think a lot more about it after then. And then it then it really kind of dawned on me, like this this is kind of crazy, um, th- the way we're treating a, this potential injury to the brain in a pretty nihilistic fashion. So I think my my radar really went up, you know. After that, so we're talking about the mid '90s.
0: Sure. Sorry to hear that. It it it's not like a a broken bone where you can take an X-ray and clearly state that it's a broken bone. There's just a lot of a lot more ambiguity with regard to trying to diagnose things, I guess, as it relates to to the brain.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Hundred percent.
0: I noticed that you've also got the Bizerian TBI lab uh, there at the University of Rochester. I'd love to learn more about, you know, what the goals and, and expectations are there at the lab and, and the work you're doing.
1: Right. So the the lab is kind of devoted to trying to find ways to objectify injury to the brain. You know, I get, I think we kind of used um, myocardial infarction a little bit as a model, and that may be a byproduct of me going through my training in the eighties when a lot of what we were able to do in terms of diagnosing heart attacks really went from like zero to 60 in the eighties. We really got good at, at identifying a myocardial infarction with this combination of a blood test and a electrical mm-hmm. marker. And I thought, well, oh, maybe we can do something of like that with the brain. And so I started to look at blood tests as a way to maybe objectify brain injury and then kind of morphed into, we might be able to use a blood test to say whether someone's had a I don't know, a concussion, we can talk more about that in a bit, a concussion, yes or no. But can we we do more? Can we tell if someone who has had a blow to the head that doesn't result in a concussion, does that cause some damage? Is it possible that these repetitive kind of non-concussive hits over time are leading to a problem down the line? And can we kind of monitor the brain acutely to, to be able to, to predict that. So sure. kind of thinking of it as a blood test is not just a, do you have a concussion? Yes or no, but is your brain safe is it, you know after this football game or yes or no?
0: Sure. Yeah. And you mentioned football. I mean, it's certainly uh, this has come more to the forefront uh, as it relates to the efforts uh, with individuals related to the NFL. And it's certainly uh, the things you're working on go much broader than that, I'm I'm sure as it relates to, you know, everyday patients coming into the ER, uh, as opposed to just uh, football injuries uh, within the lab.
1: Correct. I mean, there are many patients, other emergency folks listening to this podcast will know that there's many folks that come in with a blow to the head that clearly doesn't meet a clinical definition of of concussion or mild traumatic brain injury. But You know, the question remains, is it possible for someone to have brain injury with a blow less than that? And using the the heart attack analogy, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we thought people having heart attack had to have chest pain going into their left arm. Mm -hmm. And that was the only thing, the only kind of signs, symptoms of of a heart attack. And as we started to use markers of cardiac injury, we realized, oh, you could just be a little short of breath or maybe a little sweaty and, and be having a heart attack. And I think we're going to find something similar with head injury. You can have a blow that maybe doesn't result in being knocked out, confused, or amnestic that probably results in some injury.
0: Sure. And I, I know the work you're doing has a lot to do with point of care, but is there anything you're, I guess anybody's been able to do as it relates to the follow-up both short and long-term in those types of patients?
1: Yeah, there's a an intense amount of interest in being able to look at a patient who's several weeks out or days or weeks out from an injury and by looking at markers in their blood, try to say, yes, you did or did not have an injury several weeks ago. And this, there are a few more challenges, uh, but I think we'll be able to do that at some point in the future.
0: That's great. You know, the brain is obviously a, uh, we're still learning a lot about it. Uh, so I, I imagine this has really helped Uh, leaps and bounds us at least learn aspects of how it functions as well as, you know, how it heals? And is there a lot, you know, a lot of diversity in how these things uh, come about as well as how uh, the recovery is for patients or have you found it to be a pretty straightforward uh, process?
1: Okay. So if we're talking about mild traumatic brain injury, which is the most common. Sure this kind of severity of traumatic brain injury, probably over 90% of all traumatic brain injuries are mild. The other term for that is concussion. There's great variability in recovery. Um, And I think that in, in the old days, people used to think that this wasn't even an injury and that there was no recovery to be had because there was no problem. As we started to study this more, we saw that some people got better quickly, others did not. You know, right now we're struggling with a statistic that about 15 to 20% of those who suffer a, a mild traumatic brain injury take more than three months to recover. And you might say, well, 15 to 20%, that's that's not too bad. But we're talking about millions of people in the United States anyway, who have one of who have a mild traumatic brain injury every year? I mean, um, you, you know, Fred Corley did some some good work showing that across the United States, close to five million people a year are evaluated for traumatic brain injury in our EDs. So the, the denominator is quite large. So even if the proportion is fifteen to twenty percent, that's a lot of people. Yeah, who you're, take longer than yeah longer than three months to get better.
0: Yeah, a million people is not an insignificant amount as it relates to that, especially with uh, such a traumatic event that they're having to deal with. Exactly. So, you know, obviously in the emergency setting, time is of the essence. And as an expert in this area, what have been the current tools and protocols up to this point to assess traumatic brain injury, specifically for patients coming in the ER? I know you mentioned CT earlier uh, and not really loving the idea of having to to send people for CTs more than you need to, but uh, it being a really difficult thing to fully understand which ones you should triage out to get a CT or have there been historically other biomarkers available? Just understanding that aspect of what historically up to this point has been the protocol and, and likely to success based on that protocol.
1: The goal of the emergency provider, the emergency doc, such as myself, is really not to make a definitive diagnosis in terms of did this person have a mild traumatic brain injury or not? It's, does this person have bleeding in their brain as a result of the head injury that is potentially life-threatening? And that's where CAT scan comes in. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, the, the ER doc is faced with task of trying to decide out of the hundreds of people with mild TBI that that come in to their ED, which one needs a CT scan, you know, recognizing that about five, only about five to 10% will have hemorrhage uh, or fracture on the CT scan. So it's pretty small percentage of all people with mild traumatic brain injury. Let me just back up and just say for completeness that, that folks with TBI severity greater than that. Uh, in other words, moderate and severe TBI. Those are folks that don't look neurologically normal, who have a Glasgow coma scale score that's less than 13. That's a pretty straightforward. They're all going to get CT scans.
0: Sure. I mean, th- that's a more obvious visual and functional um, assessment and being able to, but it's really, I guess, the rest that, that the ambiguity comes into play then.
1: Correct. The rest and... You know, many of those mild TBI folks who, again, defined as a GCS of 13 to 15 with a brief loss of consciousness or period of amnesia or confusion, most of them will look like us. You know, we'll have a GCS of 15, which means they look neurologically normal. And, um, you know, the ER doc's looking at this person and saying CT scan or no CT scan. And that's often a difficult decision to make because there's... That's often a limited resource. The et the CT scan. Um, everybody gets CT scanned now for everything. So there's <laughs> usually a line for the scanner, and that's often the thing that um, delays throughput through the ED.
0: Interesting. And we're going to talk a little bit more about you know the study that uh, you've done, um, and I guess it relates to historically, and we've had conversations on the podcast other individuals as it relates to diagnostic testing and biomarkers at point of care. Uh, in the ER for other things. And I guess, as it relates to traumatic brain injury, um, have biomarkers come into play up to this point in time in helping with diagnosis at the point of care?
1: No, no. And as I alluded to, diagnosis is really not on the radar screen of the ER doc. And I I totally understand that. Now, what has emerged um, are these things called clinical decision rules. And they are um, basically a group of signs or symptoms that are supposed to indicate a patient who's at high risk for having an intracranial, traumatic intracranial injury and should be targeted for getting a CT scan. And they're very well studied Mm -hmm. and there's several of them, but unfortunately they're not used frequently so that patients still get over scanned or scanned even when they might not meet the criteria outlined in these decision roles.
0: So let's discuss a little bit about this ISTAT TBI plasma study that you performed. Um, give me a, a bit of a summary of the study and, and some of the ramifications of the study for the future of, of uh dramatic brain injury in the ER.
1: So the, this uh, ISTAT study was sponsored by Abbott and the, the Department of Defense looked at two two brain proteins and the, that end up in the peripheral circulation after a blow to the head. And the I- idea is that the higher the level of those proteins in the blood, the more likely there is to be a traumatic intracranial injury on CT scan. And this is, um, this is kind of a, a paradigm shift for how we view the brain because the brain has kind of been a bit of a black box to us and to be able to understand what's happening to it acutely by, by, by looking at venous blood is, is really something that changes the game entirely for how we would manage someone with a, a brain injury. And by the way, this whole idea started not in the United States, but in, um, in Western Europe and Scandinavia. They were quite far ahead of us in this regard. So we kind of got the idea from them and, and worked it up. But, you know, just like, a heart attack or a pulmonary pulmonary embolism with this ISTAT test we have the potential to be able to say you know within a few minutes of someone coming to the er whether they're at high or low risk for having a traumatic intracranial injury on their ct scan mm-hmm. and we could potentially reduce the need for ct scanning in many folks who who don't need it
0: no that's tremendous and, and certainly with any study getting into the details of, of how it was performed and, and the aspects of it, I, I was impressed with I guess the size of the study um, and the number of subjects that you uh, that you were able to, to utilize in the study. Uh, can you speak a little bit more about that and how, how you were able to work with that many subjects?
1: Sure. So the, the, the Istat study is is an interesting it's an interesting offshoot of A study that came before it called Alert TBI. Mm-hmm. This was uh, a study funded by a, uh, the Department of Defense and a company called uh, Banyan, and they were looking not at a not at a rapid test, but at a more traditional four-hour ELISA test. Um, so the Department of Defense was heavily invested in in being able to know whether a warfighter had a, had an injury that required medevacking to a, to a an aid station with a CT scan. So they put a lot of money into getting centers from not only the United States, but also from Europe to, to take part in a trial where we got 2011 subjects to um, give us a blood sample. And the, the original, that original study was published two years ago. Um, and then there was every, every subject had plasma banked for a future study and Fabulous. Abbott came along and did, did this study on these banked samples.
0: That's, that's great. So explain a little bit about how the test uh, itself works in the study.
1: Okay. So the, the test basically is a, a, a point of care, rapid assay. Um, it involves a, a, a cartridge. Um, and it for, for the uh, many people may be familiar with the iStat device because in many ERs it's used to measure troponin. So it's a kind of a variation of the ISTAT device that's Mm -hmm. been modified to be able to accept a cartridge that can analyze these two brain proteins. So the idea is one takes a plasma sample. So basically blood out of someone's arm, spin it down to plasma, and then drop that plasma onto the cartridge. The cartridge goes into the ISTAT device, which is, you know, it's like a little bit bigger than a, it's like a big, big cell phone looking thing. And within fifteen minutes, there is a, a you get a, you get a concentration of two brain proteins of interest, GFAP and UCHL1, and then the, vi- the device will say yes or no that this sample is uh, either higher uh, no risk for traumatic intracranial injury.
0: And then you know, obviously, with speed being of importance in the ER, and uh, that. Test certainly uh, provides that speed that is necessary on a wider variety of patients uh, than I think it sounds like has been utilized in the past, but uh, trusting the results that come out of that, you know, how well has the sensitivity been up to this point in time, as well as the specificity for an ER doc to want to utilize this and, and make sure that they can trust the results coming out of it?
1: Okay. Yes. So, I mean, it's highly sensitive, not very specific and this will be familiar to many ER docs who are used to test like that, um, like D-dimer, very sensitive, not very specific. Um, so the sensitivity is quite high, 95.8% in those with the GCS of 13 to 15, 95.7, basically the same in folks mm-hmm. with the GCS of 15. So that's, that's, that's pretty high. Its specificity is not shabby. It's 40%, which is, about as high as the clinical decision rules are, maybe actually a bit higher than some of the clinical decision rules. But this is a test where if it's negative, the ER doc can make a pretty good decision to send someone out without worrying that maybe they're missing a traumatic intracranial injury.
0: Sure. Positive
1: test though, needs to be followed up by a CT scan.
0: You know, how do you see the risk reward of, I guess the speed of the test versus... Um, how it does from a sensitivity and specificity perspective.
1: I think the test is is relatively um, rapid. I, I think all told that the time to get a result would be under an hour. The device itself can can give a result in 15 minutes, but by the time the blood is um, centrifuged to plasma and then uh, put into the, the device, it, you're probably looking at more like 45 minutes to an hour, but that's that's well within the, the time window of, of other tests we commonly do in the ER.
0: No question, I, and I apologize. I uh, I probably should not be calling it a point of care test uh, just based on its indications, but uh, certainly uh, speeds up the existing process and 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 provides better results, uh, or or at least helps with uh, with making better decisions. I would say
1: exactly, and if I could just speak to kind of how the results um, are determined. Yeah. So when the, the plasma sample is put on the cartridge and the cartridge is put into the machine, the machine will um, kind of look at the, the quantity of both, both proteins. And if both proteins are below a predetermined threshold, mm-hmm. then, then the test is negative. If either one of the two proteins are above this predetermined threshold, then the test is positive. So you get like a dichotomous readout positive or negative, positive meaning risk of intracranial injury, negative Mm -hmm. meaning not. The device also provides the the concentration of those two proteins, but it's really the the dichotomous yes or no test that we, uh, result that we think will be the most useful to emergency providers.
0: No, that that makes perfect sense. Thank you for that. So obviously, this makes things far more efficient. Uh, I assume more cost effective uh, as well as it relates to how you go about uh, dealing with these patients in the ER.
1: Well, I mean that that has to be
0: has explicitly to be studied. Yeah,
1: I mean that, that would be the hope. But you know, this is this is you know early days here um, that we we would need to kind of show that that is indeed the case. I mean that the big the big caveat for the use of this test is that it really should only be used in a patient in which the clinician was considering ordering a ct scan Mm -hmm. so if the clinician was not ordering considering ordering a ct scan using this test has the potential to actually increase ct use so i mean as long as folks kind of stick to the indication which is GCS 13 to 15. I really want to get a CT scan on this person. Let me do this blood test first. I have a feeling we will find a cost savings, but again, that does have to be, uh, demonstrated.
0: Sure. I mean, I think, uh, common sense would, would point us in that direction, but I guess, uh, we'll have to wait and see over time. So I guess where, uh, where do we go from here based on this study and, and what are the next steps and in, in kind of continuing down the road of improving on things like this?
1: This is a great, that's a really great question. You know, I, I would love to see how this test does compare head to head with the clinical decision rules. I know that, you know, working in the ER for as long as I did, we kind of, we use them quite a bit and uh, it it would be, I would want to, to convince my colleagues that they are as good, if not better mm-hmm. than the decision rules before asking them to accept this on faith. So I think that that's a, that's a, a pretty good next step then then the next I feel like really needs to happen is I would love to know from my colleagues across the country what what they would need in order to start to adopt you in order to begin to use this test what um, what would be barriers to to using a test like this assuming that it was as good as a clinical decision rule what are the barriers I mean like I like everyone else want to take as good a care as possible to people with mild traumatic brain injury. Um, but what, what, what is it going to take for, for other ER docs to say, yeah, I'll, I'll do this versus not. So getting an idea of what are the obstacles I think is so key to getting, a, a, this kind of technology accepted. If we push it out too fast without getting the opinions of the folks working on the front lines, mm-hmm. it, it is destined to not, to not be successful. So I think that that's really, really important.
0: No, that's a, a great point. And do you foresee this having applications beyond the ER as well?
1: Well, that's that is also a, an excellent and very in, insightful question. There, you know, I, I think that there's uh, rural areas in the country that are far from hospitals with a CT scan that would probably like to know: Do I really need to take this patient? to a trauma center with a CT scan, or is it safe for me to bring them to maybe um, an ER without a CT scan? And I I think a device like this could be very, very helpful in the many, many rural parts of our our country um, that, that are doing their best to provide good care. And I think that this would really help them make a good decision.
0: No, that's a great point. Pretty well. I mean, I I think you're on the right road with regard to the applications that you're you're providing. I've, I I applaud you for the work you're doing in your lab, and um, thank you for your efforts. Certainly, I've got uh, boys coming up who are uh, interested in football and other sports, where um, you know as as well as just in general traumatic injuries you worry about all the time. So anything we can do to improve things for those coming up, uh, I think are going to be wonderful and and hugely beneficial. So. Any final words about uh, the study or your lab or just uh, your work in general? And and uh, I guess specific to your outreach to the ER community to, to provide you some, some valuable feedback as you go forward?
1: Yes. I mean, I think the penultimate goal for these markers um, is to really aid in the diagnosis of brain injury. And that's the, even the, that's like the the next step after the ones I've just mentioned mm-hmm. and for those who work in, in chaotic ERs where there's folks coming in multiple trauma it's difficult to evaluate someone from a head injury standpoint to figure out did they have a concussion yes or no when there's a, a bleeding femur fracture um, you know there's multiple other injuries and I think that the penultimate goal will be to see can these markers tell us yes your person has had a mild traumatic brain injury or no, they have not. And you don't need to worry about it. And that is, I think that's that's a really exciting prospect because we know that about half of all mild traumatic brain in emergency settings, I told you diagnosis is really not on on the radar screen, but because this injury is considered treatable, that's a missed opportunity to, to reduce overall disability, identify someone with an injury send them to, to a, a a provider who can manage their injury after the ED visit and kind of developing the markers for their ability to diagnose mild traumatic brain injury is, I think, a very, very exciting and doable prospect, but we're not there yet.
0: Yeah, no, very exciting. And I, I look forward to hopefully uh, our listeners leaning in to, to lend their uh, insights back to you to kind of help keep things on the right track and point in the right direction to make sure we get there uh, sooner than later uh, based on the work you've been doing. So Jeff, I really appreciate uh, both the work you're doing and and taking the time today to sit down with me and and uh, discuss this, uh, what I consider to be some groundbreaking work. So thank you so much for your time on the Emergence podcast. Today.
1: Thanks, Mark. It was a pleasure talking to you.
0: You bet. And thanks to our sponsor, Abbott, for sponsoring today's Emergence podcast. We'll see you on the next episode.